First, I'd like to thank this congregation for the leave you gave last weekend for Anita and I to travel to Knoxville, Tennessee for the baptism of my two-year-old granddaughter, our two-year-old granddaughter, Brooklyn. Uh, And let me say uh, that in every possible way, it was perfection. Uh, Brooklyn was a rock star at two. Uh, She knew that the spotlight was on her and she made every minute of it count. And also, I was very grateful for the way we in the Connectional Church connect to each other, for she was baptized in a PCUSA congregation, and I was invited to do that baptism. Uh, So uh, thank you for that opportunity. I uh, always have uh, an amazed uh, sense of the power of God whenever anyone is baptized, but when you baptize one of your own kin, uh, there's something special about that. Although I need to remind us that as the congregation stood up, as you do, in commitment to nurture her, I was reminded that in baptism, water is indeed thicker than blood. So thank you for that opportunity. One of you who is interested in genealogy in this church was kind enough to do my own family tree after much work he was able to go back four or five generations with names and dates and even pictures of gravestones of some of my ancestors. It's amazing what you can find on the Internet. I was able to see some lineage that I didn't realize, but I have to say that I was a little bit anxious and self-conscious about what he might dig up. An axe murderer, maybe, or even worse, some graduate from Duke University. Actually, he didn't find much scoop, which I think is unfortunate, because I would have liked to have known more of what went on back then, of those tragedies and triumphs and hardships, the hurts and joys and celebrations. I would have liked to know more of the story of those generations other than the little pieces of thread that I have been given by my own parents and grandparents. Did those children fight each other, and how, how did they reconcile? What did those families think was the meaning of life? What was important? I wanted the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey says, because I wanted that story for me to understand my story. Every family has these generational stories passed down from one to the next And each story helps us understand. But generally, most of the juicy stuff is left out. As we do this family tree work, there is one thing we discover, however, once we get into it. That all our stories are pretty much alike. That we are connected in more ways than we ever thought. That every generation deals with the same things. Different contexts, same thing, like love and anger and fear and depression and addiction and disease and marriage and childbirth and and all that makes life meaningful. And, And they dealt with those same things the same way we deal with it, through struggle and faith, fellowship, prayer. I want to know how they chose to be heroic or not so in what particular case. 
I want to know the questions of faith or belief that they may have struggled with. I wanted to know what makes or made their lives complicated, just as ours is complicated. But I didn't get it. What I did get, however, was enough of the genealogy work to see how absolutely unified we are and connected in terms of the stories that we live. By our virtue virtue of our common humanity, we share many of the same things generation after generation. In fact, recent DNA samples have shown that going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years, back to the first origin of humanity, we share a common gene, a common DNA, which means that whatever particular branch of the Cro-Magnum man we are perched on, we are all connected to the same trunk, from the same seed. In fact, guess what? We're all cousins on some level. So if then we are really in relationship to everyone else this way, why can't we get along? And who am I in that sense? Who am I in relationship to the larger whole? And better yet, the question might be, where am I in relationship to the larger whole? Where where am I in relationship in terms of my pretense or my hiding, or my cover-up. Lent is the liturgical season we in the liturgical church use to ask the question, who am I and where am I? And it means to take stock of ourselves, to have an inventory. I'm not talking about our, our balance sheets. I'm talking about our lives. To look at ourselves honestly and truthfully, as truthfully as we can, at least, in the light of God's truth. To ask questions about who we are and where we are, what motivates us, what moves us. What are we like when no one is watching us? What do we truly believe is the point of life? Who are our gods? That is to say, what is it that we finally, ultimately depend on as the source of our security and strength? Do we rely on something else other than the God? What's all our anxiety about? Lent is the time for us to come to terms with our human condition and what's really rolling around in our hearts, our joy and fear, our love, our faith. It's 40 days of introspection And it offers us a chance to open the door into that attic where we have stuffed all the parts of our lives that we would rather get out of the way and forget. And to go back up those attic steps and start rummaging around in there and figure out what up there needs to get thrown out and what up there needs to be reclaimed and brought back down into our living space. And this process begins, as all things do, at the beginning. The Bible story of the beginning of man and woman never meant to be an historical or literal explanation of how or why or when, but a poetic, symbolic, metaphysical, and metaphorical truth about 
who we are and whose we are and where we are in relationship to each other. It's the story of each of us, the beginning story of each of us. And as far as the Bible is concerned, we are Adam and Eve. And the world we live in, as John Steinbeck's great book makes clear, is east of Eden. So hear the story as it is given to us in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man there was not a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, It's the most important marriage advice in the Bible. The man said, This is last, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man or a woman leaves his father and mother and clings to his spouse, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fiddly fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And they went into hiding. The Lord, the, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze that day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. I was so ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. According to some theologians, this is the source of what we call original sin. The source of our universal guilt as human beings. Starting in the 4th century, the institutional church 
led as much by St. Augustine as any, took this story as what they began to call the fall of humanity, and the theological doctrine of original sin was formed. The doctrine says that since Adam and Eve and their disobedient act in the garden, each generation of humanity has fallen too, is broken and guilty of sin. That we are all infected with this original sin as one might be infected with male pattern baldness, for instance, or the propensity for having twins. The result of that infection is that it's built into our DNA, our spiritual DNA. And the institutional church loves this doctrine because, you see, it keeps all of us and the people groveling in guilt and dependent on the priest for absolution and forgiveness. It supposedly keeps folks coming back and paying up, which is always a good way to run a stewardship campaign. And since the institutional church is built on numbers and the support of the folk, keep them guilty. Until after a while, the people get tired of being hammered and start dealing with other issues and choose to go instead to Oprah rather than the priest. Now, guilt is to the church like oil is to the industrial age, like CPUs are to the computer, the source that keeps things running. And at Lent, we are supposedly called to confront our guilt and confess it in order to be forgiven by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there's a truth to that. But guilt, as the primary reason that the church exists, needs to be revealed for the lie that it is. Buddy Ennis, a child of this church, tells of visiting an older woman who had to go to the nursing home because she had a stroke. She was a pillar of the church. She had taught Sunday school since she was about 25 years old for over almost 50 years She was uh, past president several times of the women of the church. She was always the first to sign up for whatever outreach program they had. She was there always. She just was this remarkable presence of of Jesus Christ. Yet she went to this nursing home uh, because of this stroke. And as Buddy Ennis went to go visit her, uh, on the way out, he met two people who introduced themselves as evangelical Christians who had been to visit her. And when he entered her room, he found there beside her bed one of those tracks. You know those tracks that they leave uh, that basically say, uh, because we are so mired in sin and guilt and there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, we must turn to the saving act of Jesus Christ on the cross to atone for our sins in order to be saved. And Buddy said, you know, that's fine as far as it goes, but it was completely inappropriate for this woman who had considered herself saved for 50 or 60 years. That sort of repent or burn in hell or acknowledge your guilt and be saved only goes so far. Now, while this may be the orthodox view of salvation, We have to ask ourselves, is this the appropriate message for our age, 
an age that seems to be caught in its own bed-ridden lethargy? Is this all the church has to offer? Like that stereotypical Jewish mother who gives guilt the gift that always keeps giving? When the whole Christian gospel gets boiled down to sin and guilt and salvation by the atoning work of Christ, I think personally we've missed something. Yet it seems to be everywhere. It's in our hymns, it's in our preaching, it's in our Sunday school classes. It's built into the air we breathe in the church. And it's the institutional jargon over and over again. I'm not saying there's no place for this. Sin is alive. Continues to morph into more and more sophisticated Ponzi schemes. We all struggle with feelings of guilt mostly the neurotic kind. And no doubt the need for forgiveness and forgiving may be the primary issue that we face throughout life. But I want to say there is a lot more going on here than just the common 80-proof guilt that we keep tugging along. Beginning to see that I think guilt is really a secondary emotion. Like anger is a secondary emotion, the primary emotion is fear. Guilt is a secondary emotion, the primary emotion is shame. It's easier to face guilt than shame. But I think shame is the common link that bonds us together in our humanity. Look at the story, I just read it. There's nothing here about the fall or original sin Actually, if there was an original sin, it pre-existed them eating of the tree because they made the choice to eat of the tree, which was an act of disobedience before they even ate of it. So what's that about? Either they had it at creation or it was a setup. Nor is this story about guilt, although that may be the product of what it really is about, because what it really is about is our relationship between God and ourselves and each other. Or better, our non-relationship, our estrangement, our separation, all the things that get between us. And the result is not so much guilt as it is shame. In this story, as in life, shame comes before guilt. When they were first created, the text says, they were both unclothed and naked but not ashamed And then after they disobeyed God, they chose to be like God, wanting to be like God, rather than to claim their own finite humanity. Then their eyes were opened and they discovered that they were not like God and they were ashamed. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when their eyes were opened, instead of seeing God, they saw themselves. They had shifted their attention from God to themselves and what they saw was disunion a broken relationship which they had caused and which brought them shame. And noticing their shame, they ran and hid, as we all do, finding a tree or an academic degree or a pocket full of cash or a pedigree or a pretense or whatever else to hide behind, maybe our own religiosity. Faced with our incompleteness and vulnerability, 
our sense of inadequacy, we see ourselves as we truly are, and we hide in shame. It really is, I think, the number one motivation in our life to avoid being shamed or to be caught with our pants down, to be discovered like Bernie Madoff with our hand in the cookie jar, for we will be caught and ashamed, and all will have to cover us then are some fig leaves. It's true that shame is making a comeback these days. When I was in college, it was John Bradshaw who resurrected shame in his books, Toxic Parents, Toxic Shame, and so forth, as if our particular parents are the major source of all our shame. Well, go back to the story. Now it's Brene Brown. I don't know if you've seen the TED Talks that she does. They're fascinating about the issue of shame. She's done research on women's shame and men's shame and how they are different. It is, however, a universal experience, a condition with, with each of us, no matter how deeply painful it is, and it goes way beyond the feelings of guilt. And we can live with guilt. I live with it a thousand times a week. In fact, we can even relish in guilt, because at least when I'm guilty, the light's on me, because There's this thing called narcissistic guilt, you see, that takes the light off of everybody else. So I can walk around in my own guiltiness and just feel really good about myself that I'm so guilty. We can live with guilt. We can say, my bad, which accepts the blame but doesn't really apologize a whole lot. It's a lot easier than saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I'm really ashamed. And what I did. Shame is something we avoid, of course, like the plague, because it is so existential. And what I mean by that, it is so deeply rooted in us because it, it invades our sense of beingness, not because of something we've done, but because of something we are. We feel less than. We feel inadequate. We, our beingness has been insulted. We do not measure up. It's what happens when in a pickup game you're the last one chosen because you're so bad at baseball. It's what happens when you get up in front of people and make a terrible faux pas and you feel the blood rush up into your head. It's what happens when your parents get divorced in seventh grade, which happened to my mother in a very socially prominent culture in Birmingham, Alabama, in a time when people didn't get divorced. And then they remarried and got divorced again in ninth grade. My mother knew shame. So do we. We've had plenty of times when the blood pressure rises into our face and we blush at the embarrassment of being exposed naked and vulnerable. And all we want to do is to dig a hole, climb at it, and pull the dirt over the top of us. Our deepest Fear is that we will be exposed like this. In confirmation class many years ago, the preacher was teaching the eighth grade kids, and 
Ask them if they knew the difference between guilt and shame. And a young girl raised her hand and she said, yes, guilt is a shame that you can talk about. Then he asked, looking her, then what is shame? She lowered her head and averted her eyes and then looked up at the crucifix on his wall and said quietly, shame is a guilt you cannot talk about. At that point, the teacher, bested by the eighth grade compromand, let the matter go. We cannot talk about it because it is so raw and vulnerable, too painful, but I'm starting to believe at least that this is the most powerful influence in our lives, at least the influence to avoid it. Now, there's all kinds of shame. There's cultural shame imposed on us by puritanical laws that wants us to paint a scarlet letter on our chest if we do not conform to the sexual, racial, or tribal mores of our cult. This kind of shame should not exist, at least in most cases. Then there's the shame imposed on others for the sake of our own sense of power and shamelessness, like the Abu Ghraib prison when the U.S. soldiers made the Muslim prisoners do things that would only bring them shame just for the sake of it. This is not the kind of shame this story is about. If anything, that kind of shame is a byproduct of not owning up to the deeper existential shame that is in each of us, of losing sight of our own shame and projecting it onto others This is always what bullying is about. It's always grounded in our own shame being projected unto others. Today's story is another kind of shame, I said. It is existential. It is biblical. They were ashamed and they hid because they saw themselves deep down as God saw them. And then God walked that afternoon in the garden, and he called out to them. God knew where they were. God's God. God wanted them to know where they were. Did they know where they were? Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? He called. They were in hiding. And this is the powerful story of our beginnings And it reveals to us that shame is the universal condition of our humanness and that broken relationships exist between us and God and ourselves and that what guilt there is is only a byproduct. Let that be the chaff that is burned away. Instead, let us examine ourselves during this time of Lent where it is more valuable to spend less time on guilt and more time in those places where we are so afraid of being ashamed or where we already are. That place where we are in hiding and we don't want to be revealed. Because you see, when we go there, when we let ourselves go there, we will find that that is exactly the place where God is. Searching for us and calling us by name. Where are you? 
by God's grace, may it be that we may one day be able to raise our hand and say, here I am. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.